Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Oddcast featuring me, your odd man out. I want to thank you once again for taking your sweet time to hang out with me and hopefully learn a few new things. I'm very excited to bring you this episode. A little bit nervous as well because I've been thinking over this episode, looking over the vast amount of show notes and different things that I've looked into as far as this episode goes. And I'm just worried that I won't be able to present the information the way I kind of have it in my mind. I feel like it's pretty important if you're interested in esoteric studies into mystical Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, even Reformed Judaism, and of course, if you're interested in Freemasonry. Now, we're going to be looking at the link between Kabbalah, Kabbalah, however you want to say it, and I've mentioned this on other shows, but I want to say that I think it's really a shame that more conspiracy researchers, authors, presenters haven't talked more about the Kabbalah being the roots of Freemasonry, and honestly, the Kabbalah being the roots of nearly every occult belief system. Every secret society that I look into, they at least use the Tree of Life and the Kabbalah and the Sephiroth and all that. So I think that a lot of people have tried to kind of get away from that because they didn't want to get the label of anti-Semitic. Or if they were a Christian, they were afraid that it would make Christianity look bad as well. And I think that's BS. You know, I go into how even the Judeo-Christian term wasn't a thing until at, right after World War II, or actually during World War II. And that was a concerted effort to kind of bring Christians on board with whatever political Zionism was doing at the time. And it's worked like a charm, as we all know. But I think that when you look at how many influential people, just the ones we know, have been Freemasons, and hardly any of these researchers have talked about or really focused on the fact that Kabbalah is the root of Freemasonry, along with Hermeticism, alchemy. You cannot deny the fact. And of course, many people will say, the people that are more schooled will say, well, really, the, uh, you know, the roots of Freemasonry is Egyptian. But then you get into, well, the Kabbalah has elements of Egyptian lore as well as maybe Zoroastrianism and different things like that. But face the facts, Judaism and Kabbalah, mystical Judaism, is such a part of of Freemasonry that you cannot separate the two. You would barely have any Freemasonry. You'd be cutting out probably half or three-quarters of Freemasonry if you got rid of all the Kabbalah and mystical Judaism out of it. So we ought to look and be honest with ourselves and understand how this has affected our world and our history. 
And so I want to start, of course, might as well, right, with Albert Pike in Morals and Dogma once again because he was the head of the Scottish Rite, the most famous of all Scottish writers, and he, you know, helped rewrite the rituals and whatnot. So very important guy. And so let's look into one of his quotes, famous quotes, but this one I'm going to go a little bit longer. I know a few people have quoted this one in the past, and I think I have too, but they haven't went completely through it. Let's look at this quote now, okay? Here we go. Let's start this. All truly dogmatic religions have issued from the Kabbalah and returned to it. Everything scientific and grand in religious dreams of all the Illuminati, Jacob Bohm, Swedenborg, St. Martin, and others is borrowed from the Kabbalah. I'm going to say Kabbalah and Kabbalah. I'm going to say them both ways, just whatever comes out of my mouth. So please, please excuse me. All the Masonic associations owe it to their secrets and their symbols. The Kabbalah alone consecrates the alliance of the universal reason and the divine word. It establishes by the counterpoises of two forces apparently opposite, the eternal balance of being. It alone reconciles reason with faith, power with liberty, science with mystery. It has the keys of the present, the past, and the future. Now here he's talking about the Bible. The Bible with all the allegories it contains expresses an incomplete and veiled manner only, the religious science of the Hebrews. The doctrine of Moses and the prophets, identical at bottom with that of the ancient Egyptians, also had its outward meaning and its veils. The Hebrew books were written only to recall to memory the traditions, and they were written in symbols unintelligible to the profane. Let me stop right there. I want to talk about this word profane because I see it a lot in these classical Masonic books. They love to talk about the brotherhood of man and how they're all about peace and you know bringing the whole world together. And they like to talk about how so many people are bigots. They use that term a lot, bigots. And they, I think that the term tolerance was really popularized by the Freemasons because it's in almost all their books. And, of course, they mean it towards Christianity mostly. But they talk about bigotry and tolerance and all these things. But by God, if you don't believe like them and you're not initiated into their different fraternities, they call you profane and even worse. And they say you're not worthy to even hear the truth of what they teach. So I feel like that's a bit hypocritical, but let's go on here. The Pentateuch and the prophetic poems were merely elementary books of doctrine, morals, or liturgy. And the truest secret and traditional philosophy was only written afterward under veils still less transparent. Thus was the second Bible born, unknown to or rather uncomprehended by the Christians, a collection, they say, of monstrous absurdities, a monument, the adept says, wherein is everything that the genius of philosophy and that of religion have ever formed or imagined of the sublime, a treasure surrounded by thorns, a diamond concealed in a rough dark stone. One is filled with admiration on penetrating into the sanctuary of the Kabbalah at seeing a doctrine so logical, so simple, and at the same time so absolute. The necessary union of ideas and signs the consecration of the most fundamental realities by the primitive characters, the trinity of words, letters, and numbers, a philosophy simple as the alphabet, profound and infinite as the word, theorems more complete and luminous than those of Pythagoras, a theology summed up by counting on one's fingers, an infinite which can be held in the hollow of an infant's hand. Ten ciphers and twenty-two letters. A triangle, a square, and a circle. These are all the elements of the Kabbalah. These are the elementary principles of the written word. Reflection of that spoken word that created the world. This is the doctrine of the Kabbalah, with which you will no doubt seek to make yourself acquainted as to the creation. The absolute deity with the Kabbalists has no name. The terms applied to him are Aor Pesat, the most simple or pure light, called Einsof, or infinite, before any emanation. For then there was no space or vacant place, 
but all was infinite light. Before the deity created any idea, any limited and intelligible nature, or any form whatever, he was alone and without form or similitude, and there could be no cognition or comprehension of him in any wise. He was without idea or figure, and it is forbidden to form any idea or figure of him, neither by the letter he, H-E, nor by the letter Yod, Y-O-D, though these are contained in the holy name, nor by any other letter or point in the world. But after he created this idea, parentheses, this limited and existing in intellection nature, which the ten numerations, or sephiroth, or rays, are of the medium, the first man, Adam Kadmon. He descended therein by the means of this idea. He might be called by the name the Tetragrammaton, that created things might have cognition of him. In his own likeness, when the infinite God willed to emit what were to flow forth, he contracted himself in the center of his light, in such manner that most intense light should recede to a certain circumference and on all sides upon itself. And this is the first contraction termed the Simsum, that is T-S-E-M-S-U-M. I know that was really long, but I think it's important to understand that he's just talking about Lurianic Kabbalah. We talked about in one of the episodes, maybe the last one on Those We Don't Speak Of, about Isaac Luria, and they called him the Ari, or the Lion, and he's the one that kind of reformed Kabbalah and brought in the the points of light or the, uh, the shells and this idea of this escaped light and how they would put God back together by doing good deeds that would bring the light back together, all these different things. And that's exactly, exactly what Albert Pike was talking about. And we look at another very high-level Mason and Rosicrucian, Swinburne R. Clymer. And he wrote that Masonry in its purity derived as it is from the old Kabbalah as part of the great universal wisdom religion of the remotest antiquity, stands squarely for the unqualified and universal brotherhood of man in all times and in every age. He goes on to say, The candidate is taught not merely to tolerate another's religion, but to respect it as his own, though still adhering to that into which he was born. To make reasonable this obligation, he is shown through the Kabbalah, or secret doctrine, that at the heart of every great religion lie the same eternal truths. Forms and observances only differ. The ineffable name is spelled in many ways, yet the word is one and eternal. Masonry is not only a universal science, but a worldwide religion, and owes allegiance to no one creed and can adopt no sectarian dogma as such, without ceasing thereby to be Masonic. Drawn from the Kabbalah and taking the Jewish or Christian verbiage or symbols, it but discerns in them universal truths, which it recognizes in all other religions. Many degrees have been Christianized only to perish, as every degree eventually will, if circumscribed by narrow creeds, and dwarf to the apprehension so as to exclude good men of any other communion. And he ends with, every careful and unbiased student of history knows why the secret doctrine has been heard of so little since the days of Constantine. An exoteric religion and a belief in a personal God blotted it out for self-protection, and yet, oh, the irony of history. The very Pentateuch conceals it, and for many a student of the Kabbalah of the coming century, the seals will be broken." Now, of course, he's talking about this uh, mystical Judaism idea that the Bible completely, everything in it is just allegory. Of course, we talked about in one of the episodes of those we don't speak of, the one guy who's credited, the one rabbi who's credited with writing the Zohar, which he really didn't, but Simeon Bar Yohai, he had that quote, which probably wasn't even him, it was probably... Rabbi Moses de Leon, who actually did write the Kabbalah, saying again, let's not forget, he said he was basically inhabited by the uh, spirit of this Simeon bar Yohai, who lived in like, the, I think, the second century or something like that. This was the year 1300, or in the 1300s. And he says he was inhabited by this guy. So it was automatic writing that he wrote the Zohar. And they tried to pass it off for the longest time that it was actually written way back you know, like 2nd century, 3rd century, or whatever. But 
that is not the case. So anyway, you've got all these mystical guys practicing all these crazy, crazy ideas, and they try to kind of like make it sound like it's all coming from one time frame or from one kind of mainstream source, but it's really many, many, many ideas borrowed from all kinds of different religions and philosophies over time that they've kind of put in as they call the mystery religions or just the ancient mysteries. They can say anything means anything, basically, because there's no really set way to do it. And a lot of these guys, they just basically say that all the religions are the same thing, which I think does a real disservice to actual history. But uh, most people are not going to take the time to actually look back into things because they're not into this kind of stuff. And I totally get that. But I think a lot of people, especially, uh, you know, in the conspiracy world, they take a lot of this stuff for gospel. You know, you, you take guys like Jordan Maxwell, people like that. He could say anything, and these guys that are just waking up would believe it because they, they don't know these uh, societies. They don't know the cultures. They don't know the religions, and so they believe everything they hear. Now, it's not to say that he was wrong on everything. It's not to say David Icke was wrong on everything, but these guys can say anything, and a lot of people in conspiracy world will believe it. Now, famous Masonic scholar, we've talked about Albert Mackey many times, In a book called Revered Wisdom of Masonry, he says, Kabbalah, the mystical philosophy of the Jews, the word which is derived from a Hebrew root signifying to receive, has sometimes been used in an enlarged sense as comprehending all the explanations, maxims, and ceremonies which have been traditionally handed down to the Jews. But in that more limited acceptation in which it is intimately connected with the symbolic science of Freemasonry, the Kabbalah may be defined to be a system of philosophy which embraces certain mystical interpretations of Scripture and metaphysical speculations concerning the deity, man, and spiritual beings. In these interpretations and speculations, according to the Jewish doctors, were enveloped the most profound truths of religion, which, to be comprehended by finite beings, are obliged to be revealed through the medium of symbols and allegories. He says, Buxtorf, and then it has Talmud, defines the Kabbalah to be a secret science which treats in a mystical and enigmatical manner of things divine, angelical, theological, celestial, and metaphysical, the subjects being enveloped in striking symbols and secret modes of teaching. In a book called Egypt, The Cradle of Ancient Masonry by D. Clifford and Norman Frederick from 1902, It says, the arms of the Grand Lodge are still Masonically of unknown origin. They are purely Hebraic and seem connected with the idea of the Ark of the Covenant. They were found among the papers of the learned rabbi, Leon Judah, who lectured by royal patent in 1680 on a model of the Temple of Solomon. Leon Judah, who was proficient in the Jewish Kabbalah, may also have been a member of the Hermetic Society. Now, Stephen Knight in The Brotherhood, and we've talked about that book, especially concerning London, the square mile, and how that square mile is the banking headquarters of the world, and how it's all ran by Masons and has been for hundreds of years. But he says, he's got one quote in here, he recounts that when a meeting is called at the Masonic Temple, Masons converge on the lodge from all directions. Once inside the hall, each turned his steps towards the crypt which was cordoned off so that no intruder could make his way down the stair and report the goings-on to any Gentiles. Now, I've read that, you know, Masons call outsiders Gentiles, and if you'll remember, the Skull and Bone Society does the same thing, so I think that's pretty interesting there. Now, back to Mackey in the Mystic Tie. He said, The ancient mysteries present a fertile field for inquiry, and without a very intimate acquaintance with their history and character, It is impossible, profitably, to value the legendary instructions of Freemasonry. The Kabbalah, a science much misunderstood and consequently much vituperated, is also closely connected with the symbolic and esoteric doctrines of our order, and the expert Mason will scarcely find himself competent to complete the investigations into which he will have to enter in the prosecution of our mysteries, unless he devotes some part of his labors to the study of Jewish antiquities. Digging around, and I was looking at just different sources. I want to mostly use 
either Freemason sources or Rosicrucian sources. And it came to me that you have to be a Master Mason at least to become a Rosicrucian, and you have to become a Rosicrucian and go through their degrees to become a Martinist. But it says here, this is a website for the Royal Society and their publications. It just had this one little quote here that I thought was worth throwing in. From a Kabbalistic standpoint, it is enough for us to say that this doctrine emphasizes how great the architect created the world from a world that manifested into 32 spheres of consciousness with a hidden 33rd sphere. And all of these can be found arranged on the Kabbalistic tree diagram, also called Jacob's Ladder, composed of three pillars designated as wisdom, strength, and beauty. And something else I'm just going to throw in here that I just kind of ran into from MasterMason.com it's talking about infamous Masons, well, kind of lesser-known Masons that I guess were popular for their time. And it's talking about a fellow, what's his name here, John Byram. It says, The connection between Freemasonry and various philosophies and societies has become clearer thanks to the research of Professor of Renaissance Studies, Francis Yates, The Rosicrucian Enlightenment, and a recent book published in 1984 by author Joy Hancock's entitled The Byram Collection. The book details a study of a collection of over 500 papers and geometrical representations by John Byram, who lived from 1691 to 1763. The importance of the Byram Collection is the noted relationship between subjects like sacred geometry and architecture and the Kabbalah. Byron was a leading figure in the Jacobite movement, a fellow of the Royal Society, and a Freemason. He was also a member of the Kabbalah Club, known as the Sun Club, which met at a building in St. Paul's Churchyard, interestingly to be the home of one of the four founding lodges of the Grand Lodge of London. So that's just a little bit of inside baseball there. And people love to talk about the Templars. I don't talk about them all that much, but they did come up in my episode about the Square Mile. And the reason I haven't talked about them that much is because there is so many books about them that I don't know where to begin, what's true and what's not. And with Masonry, it's a little bit easier, even though there are many, many books. But I just think you need to go back to the older books to really get the what they actually believe. The, the books that were actually written, and you know they're written by admitted Freemasons. But here it says that at the end of the 19th century, Charles Wilson of the Royal Engineers began conducting archaeological research in Jerusalem. He arrived at the opinion that the Templars had gone to Jerusalem to study the ruins of the temple. Wilson found traces of digging and excavation under the foundations of the temple and concluded that these were done by the tools that belonged to the Templars. These items are still in the collection of Robert Britton, who possesses an extensive archive of information concerning the Templars. The writers of the Hiram Key argue that these excavations of the Templars were not without result, that the Order discovered in Jerusalem certain relics that changed the way they saw the world. Speaking of the Templars, in addition, many researchers are of the same opinion. There must have been something that led the Templars, despite the fact that they had previously been Christian and came from a Christian part of the world, to adopt a system of beliefs and philosophy so completely different from that of Christianity and celebrate heretical masses and perform rituals of black magic. According to the common views of many researchers, this something was the Kabbalah. The meaning of the word Kabbalah is oral tradition, or the receiving, that's what most people say, but... But he goes on to say, encyclopedias and dictionaries define it as an esoteric, mystical branch of the Jewish religion. According to this definition, the Kabbalah investigates the hidden meaning of the Torah and other Jewish religious writings. But when we examine the matter more closely, we discover that the facts are quite something else. These facts lead us to the conclusion that the Kabbalah is a system rooted in pagan idolatry, that it existed before the Torah and became widespread within Judaism after the Torah was revealed. It goes on to say, A significant number of Templars escaped arrest and appealed to the king of Scotland, 
the only European kingdom at the time that had not accepted the authority of the Pope. In Scotland, they infiltrated the Wall Builders Guild and in some time took it over. The guilds adopted the tradition of the Templars, and thus the Masonic seed was planted in Scotland. Still, to this day, the main line of masonry is the ancient and accepted Scottish rite. Now, that was from a book called Global Freemasonry. Now, they're talking about how the Kabbalah was around before the Torah was even written. Now, if you look deeply into that book about that subject, and I didn't jot those notes down, but he's pointing to the fact that they got some of these ideas for the Kabbalah from, again, Egypt, from their time in Egypt, from their time in Babylon. So, obviously, they took other people's belief systems. Remember that when they were in the desert, Moses went up on the hill to talk to God and receive the Ten Commandments. And when he came down, they were having orgies and sacrificing children to Moloch. So, you know, they had created a golden calf. So, of course, they're going to bring some of that into their belief system. And again, during the Renaissance period, the Enlightenment period, it's when you had all kinds of different ideas coming together and many different ideas got smashed together and a lot of people again will never look back to understand that a lot of these things that they think goes way back into ancient times actually only came about or were solidified during the renaissance period so you know you've got all these different time periods where different things happen and beliefs were changed and and things were added on so this is from the Amun Rezin, the Book of Constitutions of the, of the Antient Grand Lodge, written by Lawrence Dermott, the first Grand Secretary of the Antients, and published way back in 1756. And it says here, Certain it is that Freemasonry has been from the creation, though not under that name, that it was a divine gift from God, that Cain and the builders of his city were strangers to the secret mystery of Masonry, that there were but four Masons in the world when the deluge happened, that one of the four, even the second son of Noah, was not a master of the art, that neither Nimrod nor any of his bricklayers knew anything of the matter, and that there were but a few masters of the art, even at Solomon's temple, whereby it plainly appears that the whole mystery was communicated to very few at a time, that at Solomon's temple and not before, it received the name Freemasonry, because the Masons at Jerusalem and Tyre were the greatest Kabbalists then in the world, that the mystery has been, for the most part, practiced amongst the builders since Solomon's time. I do want to take a minute and talk about Professor Gershom Sholem, who's come up in the Those We Don't Speak Of episodes quite a bit. He, of course, is dead now, but he was the preeminent scholar, still is, all of his different books on mystical Judaism. He says that Moses, even up to Solomon, they were not Kabbalists. They did not practice those beliefs. Now, we do know that later in life, Solomon took on many wives who were not of the Jewish faith. So it could be that he did take some beliefs from them. But many of these occultists and Freemasons will tell you that it was Moses who brought in the Kabbalah and taught the Jews this mystical Judaism and the Egyptian Freemasonry, if you will, and different things like that. And Sholem says that's absolutely not true. There's no proof of that. And, of course, I've never seen any proof of that. So I kind of think that that's just something they like to say as an easy way to explain it. But I think it's more complicated than that. I think it's something that they learned over time being exposed to these other religions. Let's go on here. Now, Albert Pike in Legenda says the Grand Kabbalistic Association, known in Europe under the name Masonry, appeared all at once in the world at a period when the protest against the church came to break the Christian unity. Now, it's interesting that he said that because that was not his quote. I just now realized that because that was another quote from Eliphas Levy. And we talked about how Levy is the one guy who Pike plagiarized the most in Morals and Dogma, and I've read that right out of Levy's book. He words it just a tiny bit different, but he's saying the exact same thing. Now, we talked about a magazine called the New Age Magazine, 
and it's now the Scottish Rite. I think it's called the Scottish Rite Journal, but it was always a Masonic magazine, and it was like a big magazine, practically like a book. And you can see some of those on archive.org, so just look up New Age magazine. There's actually two, I realized, and oddly enough, I believe George Bernard Shaw, the infamous Fabian Socialist, he possibly was a Mason. I don't know that to be a fact, but certainly he would agree. But certainly he would agree with many of their beliefs. But he had a magazine also called The New Age, but it was not about Masonry. Now, it says here, New Age magazine, September 1917. The moment your foot crossed the threshold of a Masonic lodge, you would have to deal with veiled and hidden meanings, with counterfeit words and substitute words, with true words and covered words and lost words. Of course, you later learned something about a certain substitute word and a true word, but did it ever occur to you that there might be a score or more of other substitute words? Of course, we know that the Mason is told he's looking for the lost word or the lost name of God, and that relates right back to Kabbalah. But I'll go on. And suppose that we find other and still more remarkable coincidences, similarities in the integral system, the unwritten work of our secret art we call Freemasonry, and in the integral system of that sacred and secret art of the Kabbalists, their sacred geometry to which they gave a name counterfeited from the word geometry, gematria. Go to your public library and take the fifth volume of the Jewish Encyclopedia. Then it says in parentheses, an international standard authority on all matters pertaining to the Hebrew religion and literature. And turn to page 589. There you will find an instructive article on the secret art of gematria. You will learn that this art is a system that is divided into degrees. And therein, by the Kabbalists, so-called, that the more important of these degrees are three in number, just like Freemasonry, and that each of these has a name. In the first degree, the degree of separation, if you wish to dispose a word so as to come to the knowledge of it, that is, of the concealed word, you would begin by lettering it, separating the word into letters. In the second degree, the degree of consolidation, you would dispose of the word by syllabling it, that is, by calculating the total numerical value of each syllable. In the third degree, before you could dispose of the substitute word and come to a knowledge of the true word, it would be necessary to note whether the substitute word stood in the proper position in the sentence with regard to the numerical values. This degree is called, in the article referred to, the degree of equilibrium. And I can't tell you how many times Albert Pike talks about equilibrium in Morals and Dogma, but it goes on. It is more properly called the degree of the balances. My brother, we are standing within the sanctum sanctorum of the temple of hidden mysteries and are forbidden to speak except in a low breath, lest the profane overhear. Again with the profane. Now, feel free to listen to that whole thing I just read a couple of times because I had to read it several times before I started understanding it. I am a little bit familiar with Gematria and the Septenary Cipher, as we've talked about before. So, I knew a little bit about what they were talking about. It's basically just that their letters have numerical values, and so they can write certain things and communicate in secret without other people understanding it. And the article goes on, We are still standing before our Masonic altar. Gazing down upon the open book, the checkered black and white of the printed page, and the glittering outlines of the star formed by the square and the compasses. But whence comes the light that is reflected from the polished surface of these two geometrical instruments? These two initials, G's, two G's. Whence comes the light that makes visible the book itself and renders legible the words upon the printed page? Ah, Arranged in the form of an equilateral triangle at the left side, the reading side, of the altar are three burning tapers. Now, just to throw this in, many people probably know this, but, you know, we read from left to right, and the Hebrews read from right to left. It's hard to learn Hebrew anyway, and especially when you consider that. 
It goes on to say that the Hebrew Kabbalists adopted the symbol of the equilateral triangle, embellishing it by placing it in the center of the initial Hebrew letter Yod, known to the mystics as the flattened mata, since it is an ideogram of the flame of a candle stirred by a breath. The representatives at a Masonic altar should always be burning tapers. Interesting that the Israeli flag is two triangles, right? It goes way back. It actually goes back to the Templars, but it goes back much farther than that as well. But uh, the Templars actually used a flag that looked almost identical. And isn't it interesting that the Templars were based in Jerusalem for one, and then you have modern Zionism based, of course, in Jerusalem and in Israel, and the Templars were the biggest bankers of their day, and then you have the Rothschilds who started modern Israel. Templars were also based in London in the Square Mile, and we know that the Rothschild family are the bankers of the royal family in London. No, I don't think that all of this is a coincidence whatsoever. And we continue. The symbol of the equilateral triangle, whether made with the flattened manta in the center of the triangle of a straight line or shown as three yods or flamantas arranged in triangular positions, is the great and distinctive symbol of the Kabbalah. Forgive me if I'm saying this word flamanta wrong. It's spelled three different ways in my notes here. Flattened manta, like F-L-A-T-N-M-A-T-A, and then there's one F-L-A-M-M-A-T-A. There's another one. But anyway, sometimes I copy and paste these older books and these older prints, and they don't paste correctly. And I'm all the time having to go back in and kind of make the words correct, but uh, don't always get every one. We'll, we'll go back into this. The symbol of the equilateral triangle, whether made with flamata in the center of the triangle or straight lines or shown as three yods or flamatas arranged in a triangular position, is the great and distinctive symbol of Kabbalah. And as such, it appears today in our lodge rooms, casting its light upon the printed page of our open Holy Bible, upon the two geometrical instruments of operative masonry, and on the two intertwined initial G's. And once more, we are to remember that it has been authoritatively impressed upon us that it was only by the aid of these burning tapers, so arranged, only by the aid of these representatives, that we were enabled to behold the great lights upon our altar. They call the Bible and the square and the compass and the different things like that lights for whatever reason. And that according to the Kabbalists, it is only by the aid of the sacred and secret art of Gematria that we may arrive at the true and concealed meanings of much in that book. Now that appears to us fanciful, meaningless, and absurd. And yeah, they're talking about the Bible so we understand that Really, the Bible doesn't mean anything to them. It's for show. They call it the furniture of the lodge. It's part of the furniture, too. So I'll read that again. And that according to the Kabbalists, it is only by the aid of the sacred and secret art of Gematria that we may arrive at the true and concealed meanings of much in that book that now appears to us fanciful, meaningless, and absurd. But you may be mentally protesting. Has it not been definitely established that the work of the ancient craft, as we have it today, was conceived and formulated by medieval stonemasons, so illiterate as to be unable to read or write any language, even their own? What could they have known of the Kabbalah? That, my brother, is one of the great mysteries of our history of civilization that makes Masonic investigation and research worth the while. For they, or some among them, did not only know of the Kabbalah, but had all the learning of all the ages at their disposal." So there you have it, guys. Uh, That was 1917, the New Age magazine. And I looked through those magazines. I think there's like five or six, maybe more, on archive.org. And they, it's really surprising how bold they were about their occult beliefs. Like, they really get into all the stuff that, I think since then, there must have been a concerted effort at some point to hide a lot of what they believe because they're pretty balls out in those magazines. And I imagine they were the type of magazines that only went to Masons. Masons probably were the only ones that had access to them. So they were pretty confident that that information wouldn't get out. It's just looking at weird things in morals and dogma and different things like that. It says here that 
reversing the letters of the ineffable name and dividing it, it becomes bisexual, as the word yud, he, or jah, and discloses the meaning of the obscure language of the Kabbalah. God created man as male and female. Again, that's Albert Pike in page 849 in Morals and Dogma. You go all the way back to my very first episode. I think it was called The Origins of Occult Agenda. And uh, you look at the Rosicrucians, a little bit with the Freemasons, they're much more guarded about it. Also, mystical Judaism and, of course, Kabbalah. They have a lot of stuff about hermaphrodites and androgyny. Of course, you look at Baphomet, and Baphomet, that's one of the things that it represents. I think it's worth mentioning, too, that you don't hear much about this rite, but it's called Memphis Mizraim, and I think it was actually the technical term was the rite of Memphis, but it's some people call it the Egyptian rite, and it went up to 96 or 97 degrees, and it was started by a Jewish mason. I can't remember his name right offhand, and I'll, I'll look that up and bring that up maybe on the next show, but it's called the Egyptian rite. It's very, very Jewish. It's very, very Kabbalistic. So apparently it was banned at some point, broken up because it wasn't the official, um, because it wasn't under the official mother lodge or whatever. But there is this uh, Kabbalist. I may have talked about him on the show before, but he says he's like the last great grandmaster of the Kabbalists of the uh, Zohar rites or whatever in. Uh, from Israel, he's from the line of David or whatever, and maybe he is, I don't know, he knows a lot about the occult, I can tell you that, but uh, I was reading one of his blogs the other day, and he says that this rite of Memphis Mizraim is still around, and not only that, but it's very powerful, and he says that in Israel, it's very close to the government there, and so I was able to find one of their lodges, it's in Jaffa, And, oh my gosh, they have the most beautiful lodge right on the ocean. It's unbelievable how nice this place is. And so that just made me think even more that this guy's telling the truth because, really, it's probably one of the nicest lodges I've ever seen and one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. So I want to look deeper into that because uh, I keep hearing some of these high-level adepts that I've been able to find videos and whatnot of, talk about these hidden lodges, hidden rites. So there are these different organizations or groups that are directly connected to Freemasonry, and they're called hidden rites. You just don't know anything about them, and that would make sense because, obviously, Masonry itself is pretty guarded, but if you're going to get even deeper into the occult, then you're going to really keep things quiet. And I think that's one reason why almost all of these, or maybe if not all of these, hidden lodges, you have to be a master mason or a 32nd degree mason. And that way you've already been schooled in the mysteries and you've been schooled in the secrecy. So they know by then that they can trust you or if they can't. So people who've been slowly conditioned to be very secretive about things are going to be able to hide things much better than the normal person. And, you know, we always hear in conspiracy world, how could you hide this, that, or the other from so many people? Well, If there's only a handful or an elite group of people that know the truth, then it's probably pretty easy to actually hide things. But we'll finish this up here with degrees in Kabbalah. And I was able to find this in spellsandmagic.org. It says here, According to the Kabbalah, there are 125 degrees of attainment between our world and the world of Einsof, which is like, you know, one of the terms for their idea of God, Einsof. To each desire constitutes a complete and separate degree and is different in each language of development. Our own world does not constitute a degree of spiritual desire and is therefore excluded from the count of the 125 degrees. The 125 degrees begin one step above our world, starting with the first degree of the spiritual world, and so on until the end of the 125th degree. A higher degree is characterized by a greater desire to give and be altruistic. The wisdom of the Kabbalah 
can guide our generation on its spiritual path along the 125 degrees back to the sensation of the complete reality, the Creator. In a book called just called Kabbalah with the Sea, and it's an older book as well. I don't have the date it was published, but we'll read more from that eventually. It says, The realm of darkness is figuratively called also the kingdom of Cain, Esau, and the Pharaoh. And that's apparently from the Zohar 155a. Like the kingdom of light, that of darkness has ten degrees. As the kingdom of light is inhabited by good spirits, so the kingdom of darkness is inhabited by evil spirits, demons, or shells. So you have levels and degrees in Kabbalah, Gematria, and of course you have degrees and levels in Masonry. Manly P. Hall talks about levels between levels in Masonry. And of course the level is one of the main symbols in Masonry, and you hear the motto on the level. So I think that's another connection. There's so many connections that it's just unbelievable. Okay, and then lastly, I know I said I was going to finish it up, but lastly here, we'll have to continue this episode, by the way. There will be a part two. According to the Zohar, God's message in the Torah is meant to be understood at four levels, literal, allegorical, rabbinic, and secretive. The more powerful and truthful purpose of the Torah is only accessible to those with special knowledge and insight per Kabbalah. The Tanya, which I believe the Tanya is one of these Jewish mystical books uh, written maybe by, um, I'm not sure if it was written by one of the Chabad rabbis or if maybe it was written by one of the uh, Heredes. But anyway, the Tanya quotes Zohar 1, 206a as saying that the five levels of the Jewish soul are Nefesh, Ruach, Nishama, Chaya, and Yeshida. The Tanya enumerates the first three levels in the Zohar, but the other two are enumerated in a footnote elsewhere in the Tanya and can be found in the same place in the Zohar. In the offering of incense, the groom's best man must bring the incense through all levels and be connected through them since the sin of the incense rises and bonds all levels into one. The priest, who is the groom's man, who is chesed from the Sephirotic tree, and the man who Hashem chooses shall be holy and not pure. What does that mean, holy and not pure? Uh, Hashem is another word for God, of course. So there we have it. I hope that I didn't confuse you too much. I know we're getting deep into this, and there's, as always, a lot of reading, but... I think it's the only way to really understand this stuff and to get through to people that this is not just some hillbilly talking about the links and the roots of Freemasonry and Kabbalah, but it is the truth. It's what they write. It's what they've taught, and many people don't know it. They don't talk about it a lot. It's kind of been a secret, and you know we've talked about the secrecy and mystical uh, Judaism, And they've had this way of hiding things because things have been written in other languages like Hebrew and Aramaic and Arabic and German and whatever else. So a lot of these things have been well hidden but are known to the adepts. Of course, you go back to these rabbis, and it's just like the priests of old in all these different religions way, way, way back in the day who were the only ones that really knew the secret teachings, that really knew the... Even the exoteric teachings, they kind of hid those from the people to hold that over their heads. And so uh, that's what we're learning here is that's the way, really, that's what Freemasonry has done. And it cracks me up, too. And, you know, we're going to get eventually, Lord willing, one of these days, we're going to get deeply into the Egyptian part of Freemasonry and the, the influence that Egypt has had on Freemasonry. And it cracks me up because these Freemasons in really the whole new age, you know, anybody who's into new age stuff, but they look up so much to the Egyptian gods and the Egyptian lore. And don't get me wrong. It's fascinating. I mean, Egypt has such a rich history and the hieroglyphs and the pyramids. And it's just an amazing, amazing culture. But who do you think built the pyramids? Of course it was slave labor. You know, they, went to war with people, and they did all the same things that our leaders do. I'm sure you couldn't resist the Pharaoh if he commanded you to do something, if he wanted you as his concubine or his slave or whatever it was. So it's kind of like 
all the things that they blame Christianity on, and trust me, the Catholic Church and even modern Christianity, there's a lot of blame to go around there, but it's like they look at Egypt as almost this uh, pristine religion that never treated people bad and had these great pharaohs who were good to everyone. And it was just crazy because we know that the pharaohs, time and time again, they would spend all the money and resources trying to build their monument, their pyramid or whatever, their sphinx, to be remembered by. That's basically what those guys would start doing as soon as they became pharaoh. That was kind of like their main concern. And that really reminds me of modern-day politicians and the debt and all that good stuff. But that's getting into something completely different. Anyway, I love you guys, and I thank you for taking the time to listen to this. I hope that you've got something out of it, and I hope it's something that you can share. You may have to listen to this one a couple more times. This is a big subject, and I hope that I was able to do it somewhat justice. Now, I want to get straight to thanking my patrons if you want to become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the odd man out and become a helping supporting member. I want to thank Christopher. I want to thank KF, Cole, Ashley. Thank you to that crazy bread man for being a covert co-conspirator. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ruckus from the Daily Ruckus from alternatecurrentradio.com as well as TNT Radio. Thank you for being a producer of the show, Ruckus. Thank you, No Evil Shall Fear. Thank you, Mark, from Housatonic Live. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bill S., for being a producer of the show. Thank you, John Brisson, from We've Read the Documents, for being a covert co-conspirator. Thank you to the Mighty Kilowatt. Thank you, Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, David. And thank you, Jack Allen, from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Get on over there and check out Jack's content on all your fine podcasting platforms. And last but not least, I want to thank AlternateCurrentRadio.com, my podcasting family. Get on over there and check out all their fine talk and music shows as well. And check out my friend Hesher, Brian, on State of the Union on TNT Radio. I'll be talking to you soon. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.